Well, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We are continuing our study with what many scholars consider to be the most controversial passage in all of Scripture. Uh, From the time of the early church fathers to really this very day, Christians have never stopped debating the exact meaning of what the great apostle said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 through 22, which is what we're going to look at as we continue our study in these verses. Some people have claimed that these verses actually teach a form of universalism that says that Christ will enter hell and preach the gospel to those that never heard it before so that they may escape the penalty of unbelief even though they are dead. Some have claimed that these verses speak of a place reserved in the underworld for the incarceration of demons who once sinned against God in the days of Noah by marrying human women and producing in them monstrous offspring eventually that walk the earth as giants. Some have claimed that these verses speak of the biblical character of Enoch, who they say he descended into Hades and proclaimed victory to the prisoners who were there. While there's others that say, actually, it was the Lord Jesus who ascended into the heavens to preach the sermon to the fallen angels who are now in chains in the air. And although those interpretations are very varied and different as they could possibly be, all who claim them say that they are possible because of the grammar and the syntax of the verses from which they come. So the question for us this morning is simply, what is the truth? What is the true interpretation of 1 Peter 3? The Apostle Peter has been writing now for three chapters in a letter that is about the inevitable reality that tells us that Christians will suffer in this world for doing what is right. We suffer sometimes in the hands of unrighteous government. We know that. We suffer sometimes because of those who employ us are unreasonable and unfair. We've talked about that. We can even suffer within our old homes, the homes that we live in with our spouses and our family members because they have no love for Jesus Christ. And because of that, they mock us and really shun us for clinging to him in our times of need. So from demonstrating authority to domesticated authority to uncivil kind of spouses to believers who are constantly being harassed for their rights in the unbelieving world, we would have to say that this book has been certainly about submission and how to deal. But now Peter says, instead of reacting to their words, we must submit to their demands. Instead of resisting their authority, Peter encourages us to endure ill treatment, very important part of this, because to return good for evil, and though through the righteous example give this dying world a picture of living hope that defies explanation. That's what we see in Ukraine right now. That's what we're seeing all over the world. That's what we see in the United States, people living for Christ and, and suffering for doing what is right. And then to motivate us for this heavenly work in this book of 1 Peter, he starts to speak of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the model of righteous suffering. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of godly submission. In chapter 2, it's Jesus who Peter says has left us this example so that we might walk in his steps. What are his steps, you might ask? says, who committed no sin, chapter 2, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Then in Peter, Peter in chapter 3 continues this idea of Jesus emphasizing the result of this suffering when he writes this, 
For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You can see that section right before the verses that we're going to look at even today. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust. What's he saying there? It says his suffering as our suffering was evangelistic. His suffering as our suffering should be is evangelistic. His suffering actually won souls to heaven, the same souls that spat upon him and nailed him to a tree. Though they killed him, he endured their suffering justly so the unjust might be saved. And that sounds wonderful, and that is wonderful, and that's what our justification is based on. The only problem is when we're talking about suffering is we're not Jesus. We're not him. We can't do it alone. So why do I tell you these things? Because the context that I just rehearsed for you in this chapter holds the answer to this most controversial statement, I think, in all the New Testament. And the context, as we talked about last time, is the key that turns the lock for every encouraging answer that can possibly come out of this section of Scripture. So with that in mind, and if you haven't already do, done it, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 through 22, and we're going to continue to think about the context that Peter has established as we begin this process this morning of attempting to unwind the Gordian knot, if you will, of the New Testament. So he says this, 1 Peter 3, verse 19. In which, speaking of Christ, he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I'm reading the Legacy Standard Bible. So the last time we spoke, the majority of the time together, I was trying to present to you uh, the traditional view of 1 Peter chapter 3, and I spoke of a few reasons why that view is not necessarily the only view that makes sense to us. And so that's what we're going to establish this morning. We spoke of the interpretation that these verses, the word spirit in verse 19, or spirits in verse 19, is referring to a band of fallen angels who were once disobedient to God in Noah's time when he was building the ark. The theory of that viewpoint, the traditional viewpoint, says that the disobedience of these fallen angels stemmed from the fact that they had come to church, they had come to earth, they might be here, uh, and, <laughs> and taken for themselves women as their wives, and consequently produced in them this monstrous half-breed offspring, this part human, part demon, and who were also dominating tyrants that vanquished the earth with their evil. That's the traditional view. And it says primarily on account of this particular gross account of perversion and the multiple sins that flowed from it that God drowned the entire earth because of its iniquity, because of these fallen angels. And because of the perverted nature of this cross-breeding kind of sin, this particular group of fallen angels was consequently confined to an underworld prison by God where they are staying even now waiting their final judgment. So according to this view, if you're kind of keeping tabs with what I'm doing here, our Lord Jesus, after he died on the cross and before the resurrection, this is the view, decided that he would go to this prison 
in his spirit so that he might preach victory over sin and death to these fallen captives in an attempt to glorify the wonderful salvation that he has granted us and to condemn them and the horrible acts that they committed in the days of Noah. Now, where, if you're tracking with me, you might ask, did the originators of this interpretation get this view? Well, almost would say, almost everyone that holds this view would say that their their teaching is validated from what Moses taught in Genesis 6 when he referred to the sons of God who took for themselves wives or from the daughters of men. They said the sons of God, again, this is going to connect back to this idea of fallen angels, referred to these fallen angels and the deeds they did. So we spent a fair amount of time last time going and looking into that assertion and found that ultimately it really wasn't the case, the most satisfying view, considering the context of Genesis 6. So again, this is going to be a little bit like a seminary class today. It's not going to be quite me preaching, but I am very excited about it. And I hope this view opens your mind to just how important Bible study is. Um, So we spent our time doing that. I believe that a better interpretation of the sons of God contextually in Genesis 6 is referring to the godly line of Seth, the godly line of Seth and the contrast between those who began to seek the Lord against the women whom they married who did not follow the Lord. So it's the sons of God that cohabitated with the daughters of men. And for a more expanded explanation of that, if you want, you can always go to the website and download what it is that I taught from the last time we were in 1 Peter. But just for our time today, I want to keep moving back to our text in 1 Peter 3 to establish another possible interpretation that doesn't ask us to swallow an explanation that seems almost mythical in its proportions. And I say that for a reason. And listen to me carefully here, because it's very important that you get what I'm saying as we continue on. When you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you're born again, something fantastic happens to you. You you realize you're a sinner. You realize that your sin has separated from you from God. You realize that there's actually a God to be separated from and that he has established very specific, very non-negotiable way for you and me to approach him. You realize that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth from heaven, who was and is fully God and fully man, so that he might become the sacrifice for sin, and that all who believed on him are saved from an eternity in hell. You realize the amazing amount of some pretty awesome supernatural truth when you come to that realization, when God opens your eyes. And more than just realizing these things, get this, you're convicted of them, right? This is a a deeply settled conviction of your heart. And it's not just that Jesus lives, grabs you, but he lives in you. He lives in you, completely blows you away when you think and ponder and meditate on these truths. It's not just that there is a heaven and a hell that grips your heart, but that these destinations are real and waiting for your arrival. That's what takes your breath away, that these are real realities, And all of these realizations and convictions of the heart flow first and foremost, I might say, from your conviction that the Spirit of God has convinced your sinful heart that His Holy Word is true, right? That it all flows from this understanding of Scripture. One of the first evidences, if not the first evidence of salvation and a converted soul is that you've been convinced of the inerrancy of Scripture, You've been convinced that you, without a shadow of a doubt, that all of the fantastic and supernatural truths that you encounter really are true. 
Like when you open this Bible and you read, you're convinced of the sufficiency of Scripture, the the inspiration of Scripture, the relevance of Scripture all the time, all the time, every day. And of course, over time, these convictions grow and deepen, and they become stronger and stronger as you study the Bible, as you continue to be a part of this process, as our pastor was talking about today, of learning, of growing in grace. But even from the very beginning, a Christian places his or her faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins because they understand the Bible is true. It's true. Hell is true. God is true. Jesus is real. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. All of these things. I know I'm going quickly here because of time. Just ring true to you. They ring true because, as Jesus said, his children hear his voice. His children hear his voice. They're able to discern the master's voice in the words of Holy Scripture. You read the Bible with new eyes and a new heart because what you read is from God. And you understand the one that created you is the one you are listening to. That's the most that's the most precious gift that we own. That's the most precious thing that we've been given, the ability to understand and trust the Word of God. Why am I saying all this? Because sometimes it's true, and you will have to agree, I'm sure, that when you're studying the Word of God, you come face-to-face with some pretty fantastical stuff. Sometimes you're reading the Bible, and you see the whole world was drowned by God except for a few. Sometimes you read the Red Sea parted and allowed millions of Israelites to escape their Egyptian captors, and then it crashed back together and drowned them. You, you read the sun stood still. You read that a donkey spoke. You read that angels speak, that virgins give birth to deity. You come across a library full of some pretty exceptional truths that most people who haven't been regenerated will tell you is a pack of lies. And that's definitely a part of the Christian faith because our entire existence is founded on those truths. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of our our belief in the resurrection, that we are actually going to be resurrected from the dead. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. The point being is that we believe a supernatural God gave us a supernatural truth to demand a supernatural faith to believe them, right? He he opened your eyes. You're regenerated, and therefore you believed. So I say that because I don't reject a view that says demons married and then impregnated human women to produce a monster giant who demonizes the world because it's too fantastic for me. Like, I can't grasp anything that's fantastic because, truth be known, my entire life and my entire future and your future is based on some pretty fantastical truth. So I don't reject a view that says fallen angels in the time of Noah, not because it's too mythological for me to believe, but because the source of where the idea came from is mythological. You see, there's, you're going to understand there's a difference. What do I mean? The view that believes that 1 Peter 3 and Genesis 6 are speaking of these fallen angels inhabiting or, or uh, reproducing with married human women is a view that finds its origin in the non-canonical book of 1 Enoch. We spoke to that last time. And let me just unpack this a little bit more for the people who are new. 1 Enoch was a book that was written two centuries before Christ was born that contained a lot of very interesting, uh, very fantastic views from the Old Testament. And one of those views concerned this idea of fallen angels marrying earthly women in Genesis 6, and for many, many years, the chief interpretation of most people in the days of Christ was that. But Enoch, first Enoch, I should say, was never universally accepted as being canonical in Scripture or Scripture. Why? 
Because the church never recognized the teachings of First Enoch were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The church never affirmed it in its canon, not in the West. And in fact, some of you commented to me last week or last time I talked that uh, when, you read, when I read that portion of First Enoch, that it didn't sound like Scripture. It didn't sound like it was something that God had inspired. You know, Scripture has a certain sound that flows and has the ring of truth in the believer because they recognize the Spirit of God, and as he speaks, and you go, yes, this is from God. The Spirit of God inside of me recognizes his words. And so when you hear passages read from First Enoch, you didn't hear the shepherd's voice because it's not there. Uh, the shepherd did not inspire that. You'll get the same impression, side point, when you read the Quran or Book of Mormon. He's not present in that book. The Spirit's not guiding that conversation. Commentator Peter H. Davids points to the Dead Sea Scrolls for evidence concerning the non-canonical authority of First Enoch. He says, though, though some Jewish groups, most notably those living in the Qumran and Dead Sea area, definitely used First Enoch and valued it, he says, nonetheless, we do not find First Enoch grouped together with the scriptural scrolls, end quote. So that book's not inspired. So just put that before you because although we point to the fact last time that Jude seems to have quoted First Enoch in his letter, we, it's important to note that this reference is not related to a complex form of theology. He's not using First Enoch to explain a theo- theological point, but simply just to point out a, a truth about the Lord's judgment from of, of, over the ungodly that's found in other Old Testament books as well. The same thing that you find in Jude can also be found in Deuteronomy 33 too. He used that source. So Jude does true, refer to the section of First Enoch. He quotes it as prophecy from Enoch. But when he does that, he is merely saying through the inspiration of God, the same thing that the apostle John tells us happened on the Lord's day when Caiaphas prophesied regarding the fate of Jesus, even though he was an unbeliever in John eleven fifty one. So God can, I'm going to start to slow down. I might not make it today. This might have to go on to a, or you or just, you know, call in right now, order, uh, you know, maybe we can get some food delivered because I, I can see this isn't working out. Uh, that's okay. It's just study. Uh, God can and did allow even unbelieving rulers to prophesy the truth, if it fits his purpose. We just heard from our pastor today that, that Putin is a vehicle of God for the use of judgment. So God can work through anyone he wants to, believers, unbelievers alike, and so that doesn't surprise us. And again, the reason I bring this to your attention is not just because this book has influenced the interpretation of Genesis 6, but just for our purposes today... Because I want First Enoch to also know that that's heavily influenced the traditional interpretation of First Peter three. So it's not just me talking about it in terms of you know Genesis six. It's First Peter three. So when dealing with First Peter three, if you're going to take notes, nineteen through twenty two, you need to ask yourself some questions about the text, and we're going to ask those questions. Namely, who are the spirits in prison? You probably have that thought when you're hearing me read it. What did Christ preach? And number three, when did Christ preach? Who are the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach? And when did he preach? And those three questions are going to act as our outline for this morning. So if you're with me, we're going to launch right into it. Let's begin with this first question that comes out of verse 19 of chapter 3. Who are the spirits in prison? Let me just read that to you. In fact, let me back up to verse 18 so we get a little context. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So here's the first question is, who are the spirits in prison? Verse 19, it says, in which, and we'll get back to that phrase in just a second, but in which also he, meaning Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now, if you see that word is in italics, it's not in the original, uh, in prison, in prison. Now, if you remember, one of the key elements of the traditional view of this passage hangs on the fact that they say spirits refers to fallen angels, and those fallen angels were the sons of God who were spoken of in Genesis 6. Does this make sense so far? So we're all tracking together. And probably the key argument that they use in saying spirits refer to fallen angels is because when the word pneuma in the Greek is used, it's here without a genitive, and that gives it a further definition. Then it always refers to evil spirits. Let me say that again. The key is when spirits, because when the word pneuma in Greek is used as it is here without a genitive, it gives the further definition Then it will always refer to evil spirits. So pneuma without a genitive always refers to evil spirits. That's the contention. And that's called using the noun in the absolute way. It's absolute when the spirit isn't given a phrase to further define it like spirits of men or, or spirit of God. So when it's just spirit by itself or spirits, they say it always means evil spirit. That's what's driving this interpretation plus what they understand First Enoch to say about Genesis 6. So because of that grammatical truth, when this word spirits must be speaking of fallen angels is their contention. But there's a problem with this. And again, it's a little bit of a class today, but you know, you guys are brilliant people. Uh, there, there, there's more degrees in here than most places, so... Uh, Of course, having a degree doesn't really mean anything because I barely got one. So anyway, (laughs) took me 10 years, come on. Uh, First off, we do see examples of the Greek word pneuma being used in the single and in the plural in an absolute way without the genitive as referring also to men. We do see it used in that way. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, we see spirit without a genitive in Ecclesiastes 12.7 when it says, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Uh, It's not speaking to an evil spirit there. It's speaking to about a man, a spirit, a person who is in God. Matthew 27.50, we see pneuma without a genitive when it says, Jesus yielded up his spirit, literally in the Greek, yielded up the spirit. In John 19.30, we read, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit, literally gave up the spirit. So you might say that is interesting, but the word here in 1 Peter 3.19 is spirits, not spirit. Okay, fair enough. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, where we read concerning God and man, that he is the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, referring to believers and men and women, is there. So the issue, I believe, is not so much trying to classify spirits here as either referring to fallen angels or men based on or not the fact the word appears in an absolute sense without a genitive defining it, because as we saw last time, what ultimately defines a word is what? What ultimately defines any word in any passage? That's exactly right. Context is where it's found. Those spirits here in verse 19 doesn't have 
of men or of angels, the fr- or like a phrase that further defines it so you can be even more absolute. It does have a context that defines what kind of spirits he's referring to, namely spirits now in prison who once, verse 20, were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So these are the spirits. Who were these spirits? The ones that disobeyed in the days of Noah. Who disobeyed in the days of Noah? Remember? Men. Men. Mankind disobeyed in the days of Noah. Just real quickly, go back to Genesis 6, just for a moment. I don't want to spend a lot of time there because I know some of this is review. But chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, I'm going to read as you're going there. I just want to make sure that you see it. Now, it happened when the men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And Yahweh saw that the evil of man, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Now, I read that to you because obviously, and you could tell by the way I emphasize it, man disobeyed. It was man who disobeyed. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 it says, the spirits, if you, were, 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 if you will, were specifically those who disobeyed during the time of the construction of the ark. Very key factor. Very key. Genesis does not speak of the way men disobeyed during the construction of the ark, but only before the construction of the ark. You might not have gotten that from the context that we just read. To understanding the situation, this occurred during the building of the ark. We need to uncover some clues from different passages, as we're going to do in a moment. But we do know that Peter says this disobedience happened in the days when God's patience kept waiting, right? That's when these happened. We'll look at, again, at Genesis 6.3. You can just remember, if you, unless your finger's still there. God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. That phrase is an expression of God's patience, isn't it? I will not strive forever. He's saying, my spirit has been striving with man been long-suffering with man, but not for too much longer. And who is God's Spirit striving with in this context? Man. So back to 1 Peter 3, 19. I think we've seen enough to say that it's a false distinction to claim that pneuma by itself always points, always points to fallen angels, because in every case where it means angelic spirit, as well as every case where it means human spirit, it is the context that makes clear what kind of spirit is being referred to. So, who are the spirits in this prison? I remember John had that explosion last at the very end of your critical race theory. He goes, so I'm going to pass out. So, I, I kind of feel that right now. Uh, so, who are, if I do drop, just resuscitate me. You know the number to call. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm doing fine. So, who are the spirits in prison? 
I believe most likely the interpretation from the context, again, points to them being human beings who disobeyed during the days of the construction of the ark before God destroyed the earth, or all mankind, I should say. Why not then just call them men or humans, right? Why not alleviate all this? Because Peter is speaking about them now that have died and have gone to prison in the sense that they are spirits. He's speaking to those men who are now spirits in prison who once disobeyed during the times of Noah. When they disobeyed, they were men. When they were placed in prison, they were referred to now as spirits. Before the righteous and the unrighteous are given resurrection bodies, they exist in merely disembodied spirits. Once a believer dies, they're instantly present with the Lord, but in spirit, their resurrection body will be given to them, as theologians say, at the rapture. Conversely, when an unbeliever dies, they are instantly in prison in the place for the unbelieving called Hades, but only their spirit, their bodies designed for everlasting punishment will come later, and that's why I believe Peter makes this distinction. This is the place I believe our Lord refers to in Luke 16, 23 with Lazarus and the rich man. According to that narrative, if you remember, Hades is a place where unbelievers are conscious, able to communicate. If it is the same abyss that Scripture speaks of in other places, it is the place where even Satan himself will be bound one day for a thousand years, as Revelation 20 tells us, only to be released from that prison to deceive the nations once more. In the context that there is a prison is the abyss where they are thrown before the lake of fire, the same eternal fire that unbelievers will be thrown into, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So unbelieving sinners are said to be captives of Satan. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.26, Luke 4.17, and also we'll see 2 Peter 2.19 as well. So it seems contextually that spirits now in prison that Peter's referring to are not a small group of fallen angels, but rather an entire generation of mankind who sinned during the construction of the ark. Which brings us to our second question. What did Christ preach? What did Christ preach? We're going to answer some of these questions, and hopefully this makes it more clear. Well, if that is true, if that's, if that's who the spirits are, that they're men and women, humans, then when he says he goes to them in verse 19 and that he preached and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, what did Christ preach? Very important distinction here. And again, verse 19 says, he, meaning Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits. Now, the traditional view of this is, says that Christ preached victory over sin and death to the fallen angels. The reason this is because if you have Christ preaching to those in Hades, uh, fear would be that possibly one might think that he's preaching the gospel to them and therefore offering a second chance to them and to uh, hopefully that that is not what Peter is saying. We know he's not, but because of that, traditional, the traditional view affirms that he's proclaiming victory. He can't be proclaiming the gospel. He has to become a proclaimer of the victory. Hebrews 9.27 already tells us, that, of course, that you know, man dies once and then comes judgment. So there is no in-between stage of waiting where you can come, listen to the gospel in Hades or, and be saved. There's only one in this life, one life for a man and woman to be saved. Salvation never comes, never is offered in Scripture to the dead. That's why Roman Catholics 
would say that this prison is a holding place called purgatory. You've heard of that before, where a man's spirit can be ransomed after their deaths by good deeds of those who love them. But the Bible never teaches that doctrine. That's absent from Scripture. So to avoid any confusion, the traditional view says that the preaching Christ did in Hades is preaching triumph, is to preach not repentance, which makes sense given the premise that they have. Now, here's the thing. It's interesting is this is the word used here for preaching the Greek is kariso, which is very often used for the proclamation of evangelistic preaching. In other words, the word that is used here to make proclamation in the Greek always refers to this idea of evangelism. There are other verbs that speak directly to that kind of preaching, uh, kergama or others, but again, the context is the most important clue for the use of a word. So given the context Tell me that you're with me if you are. Just, just thank you. Okay, because you know I, I kind of can't tell, and I, I can't. I don't want. I can't look up that much because I got a lot to do. So I'm just assuming you're awake. Um, so given, thank you for laughing because that means you're breathing. Uh, so given the context, it would seem as if the normal usage of proclaiming repentance would be the natural choice. But because it seems that these spirits are being preached to while they're in prison. The only way to understand this preaching of the Lord would have to be triumph, even though that word in the Greek is used for evangelistic terminology, to evangelize for repentance, you would just have to think, well, he must mean contextually, given the premise that this is uh, a preaching of triumph. And again, we were here last time and noted that the traditional view cites the verses as proof of their usage in Genesis 6 to describe fallen angels, because Peter speaks of angels who sinned and then Noah, and Sodom, and Gomorrah. But I think you can see that these highlights of God's judgment is in a kind of a chronological order and not necessarily connected to each other. Just focus on this. That being said, look at verse 5. It speaks of God. Let me see here. I'm sorry. I actually went to, the, I went to 2 Peter in my mind without telling you to go there. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. That's why as I was saying that, I'm going like, do they know what I'm talking about? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Same author, again, his second epistle. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth of all the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, opposed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds then God knows how to rescue the godly from trial. Let's just keep it there. If all of these other things are true, then how much more would God be able to keep the godly even now in this day as they go through trial? Now, that being said, when you look at verse 5 of chapter 2 of Second Peter, he speaks of God not sparing the ancient world. He's not sparing the ancient world. That's men. But preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Do you see that? Preacher of righteousness. This is the same root in the noun preacher in 2 Peter 2, 5 that we have in the verb proclaiming in 1 Peter 3, 19, okay? So the same root noun there, preacher in 2 Peter, that's a noun, is the same root of the verb of proclaiming in 1 Peter 3, 19. 
So it seems that Peter's description of Noah as a preacher of righteousness would suggest a call to repentance, would it not? It would suggest a call to repentance. He is preaching in his day righteousness and therefore repentance. So we have here one of the only clues about what must have happened during that construction of the ark period, namely that during that period, Noah was preaching righteousness to the lost world around him. He preached repentance to the lost world around him. He preached about the coming judgment. He preached about the need for those surrounding him to believe on God, the God of the Bible, and be saved. That was surely his message. Go, go with me just quickly, I'm sorry, to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 for another clue. I feel like, you know, Sherlock Holmes here. Go to Hebrews 11. It must have happened in the days of Noah was building the ark. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 7, Hebrews 11, verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, that's the coming judgment of the flood, in reverence, that's his holy life towards God, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, meaning the physical salvation of his household, not spiritual, by which he condemned the world. You see that? By which he condemned the world. Now, what does that mean by which he condemned the world. What does by which refer to? Well, look back in the verse. It seems to be referring to his preparation of the ark. The preparation was in and of itself a condemnation to the unbelieving world around him. Now, think about this for a moment. Just think about this. His righteous, reverent life, Noah's righteous, reverent life, his righteous building of the ark, plank by plank, for what most theologians would tell us was 120 years of building that, nail by nail, measurement by measurement, was a testimony against those who had jeered and mocked and ridiculed him. His faithful, righteous work was a testimony against them. So if you take what we've learned from Second Peter and Hebrews about Noah, you begin to see that his righteous life and his righteous preaching with the way that Noah, a man, during the construction of the ark, exemplified the model of a righteous sufferer in his generation. He was a righteous sufferer like none else in his generation. Therefore, keeping that in your mind, go back to the context in 1 Peter 3. We can rightly assume that Jesus' proclamation to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah when he was building the ark was also a message of repentance, okay? It was the same word. Context makes it work. But wait a minute, you say, maybe, why would Christ preach repentance to those in prison? I never said they were in prison, just so you know. I never said that. You said that, but I didn't say that. No, I, I, he, that's what the traditional view says. That's the when did Christ preach to these spirits. Now, this is our third point, and we're racing toward the finish line. When did Christ preach it? So if that's what happened, that's who the spirits are, they're people, and what did he proclaim repentance, not triumph, then when did that happen? When does it happen? And this is the tricky part. <laughs> so just hang with me here. First Peter three nineteen. Remember I said that the word in italics there now isn't in the original. Remember I said that earlier? The text says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That word now has been offered to us by the translators of the New American Standard as well as the Legacy Standard Bible, and I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful it's there, and I say that because it shows me that the translators of the New American Standard and Legacy Standard Bible understand something that makes a lot of sense. That being, 
Jesus made this proclamation to individuals who are now spirits in prison, but were alive during the time of the construction of the ark when Christ preached to them. Now, if you just heard what I said, you're probably going, what? What? Yes, he preached to spirits that are now, at the time of my writing, Peter says, are in prison, but formerly disobedient in the days of Noah. That is a complete possible rendering of this verse, and that's why the translators provided us the now in italics to make sure that they know, or we know, that they believed it was being said as well, in my opinion. In fact, Peter uses this same way of speaking we're going to see in a few months, chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that they are judged in the flesh as men, meaning they have died, that they live in the spirit according to the will of God, meaning that they were saved. So even those of the traditional, if you're still hanging with me, even the traditional view of 1 Peter 3 say that 1 Peter 4, 6 is speaking about those people who are now dead, but we're alive. And you probably see that in your New American Standard margin, preached in their lifetimes, it'll say in the margin. So even the traditional view would say that of these verses. So Peter is likely using that same kind of construction in chapter 3, verse 19, that speaks of preaching to spirits who were alive when the preaching took place, but now are in prison. When he says that also in chapter 4, 6, the gospel was preached to those who believed it when they were alive, but currently are dead. It's the same communication style in both of these sections. Also, this is very technical, and I had to go over this a few times this morning just to make sure. Answering this, when did Christ preach? The question, when did Christ preach, I think is important to point out that the words in verse 20 that say, who once were disobedient, can legitimately be translated a completely different way to say when they formally disobeyed. That it can be, instead of who once were disobedient, can be translated when they formally disobeyed. Now, you might not be taking Greek right now, uh, but just let me say it to you, and then you can go back and listen to it. How is this possible? First of all, there is no separate word in verse 20 for the word who that begins the sentence. The understanding that is dependent on seeing this participle disobeyed to modify spirits in verse 19. So, very common way to translate a participle or that participle is to understand it adverbially, which is modifying the verb in the sentence, which is the word proclaiming, rather than the noun that's the antecedent because the participle here lacks a definite article. Because it lacks a definite article, this, I know it's like, uh, what a, I know, just trust me. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> Bieberians, you know, check it out. Uh, it could be translated, because it lacks an article, when the, part, when the participle lacks a definite article, it could be translated back to connecting to the verb and not to the noun. It's the verb. So it could be um, because they formally disobeyed, or although they formally disobeyed, or when they formally disobeyed. And in each case, the phrase would modify the idea, the verbal idea of preached or proclaimed. Now, if that's the best, just five more minutes and lunch is here and, you know, John Street's going to pay for everybody's lunch. So uh, uh, <laughs> I've never seen him laugh that hard. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, if that's the best translation, when we again confirm with a time when Christ preached to the spirits who are now in prison, the being when they disobeyed, that's when he preached, when they disobeyed, that's the time. In other words, when they were alive in Noah's day. When they disobeyed in Noah's day, that's the time that he made proclamation. So what are we saying? 
We're saying that a very good option of understanding these verses is very different from the traditional view that says Christ preached to his triumph, his fallen angels, to preach to his triumph to fallen angels in an underworld prison who had married human women and impregnated them like demon children. Instead, we understand these verses to be speaking of a time when Jesus Christ preached repentance to those men and women who had disobeyed God during the building of the ark in the days of Noah, who are now in prison, in prison of Hades, awaiting final judgment for what they had done when they were alive. Now, there's only one more problem to that, and that is, how did he do that? How did he do that? Well, verse 19 says that he went to them. He went to this generation during the time prior to the flood. In what way then did he go? Look back with me again at the end of verse 18. It says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, they killed him, but made alive in the spirit, verse 19a, in which spirit also he went. Now that tells us something very important. It was this same spirit that went to them in Noah's day. What spirit is that? Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, and... Just listen as I read 1 Peter 10 and 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What we have here is a preview of something Christ did in his spirit through the prophets. That's in chapter 1. The spirit of Christ within them. Christ was in them revealing the words of truth that they didn't even understand. I believe contextually it is totally possible that what Peter speaks of here in chapter 1 is the same situation he's speaking of in chapter 3, a pre-incarnate presence of Jesus Christ manifesting himself through the preaching of Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. That's what I believe is here. Noah preached with his life. He preached with his words. He preached every blow of his hammer and ark. And he warned the generation of this coming disaster. And we find here the truth that the spirit of Christ who preached through him, that I believe is the most likely interpretation. It were men and women who had fallen. They are in prison now, but they weren't during the times of Noah. They sinned. That's why God brought the judgment. And they, they were proclaimed repentance through God's spirit, the spirit of Christ in Noah. And it fits with Genesis 6 very well, where it says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, the Lord says. My spirit shall not... So Christ strived with man through the proclamation of his gospel in the days of Noah through his spirit, the spirit of God. And I have more, but I'm going to have this one quotation, and then you can argue amongst yourselves. (laughs) Not only did Augustine say this, but also John Feinberg, John S. Feinberg, biblical scholar, great esteem, in our day says the following. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead, went and preached through Noah to the people who were non-believers in Noah's day. As a result of that preaching, Noah was laughed at and persecuted, just as Christians of Peter's time were being laughed at for their stand for the Lord. But what was the final outcome? Those who laughed and disobeyed were destroyed in the flood, but Noah, the preacher of righteousness, who suffered for his stand for God, was saved. He was vindicated and exalted, and so was the Christ who preached through him. That fits the context wonderfully. I have many more things to back up what I just said, but overall, and we can talk about this next time when I'm going to preach, because some of you are also saying, well, what about baptism? 
You said something about baptism saves. When is that going to come up? Next time I preach, I will go. So we're, this is a suspended case of, of interest, hopefully. The, the main theme of this is this, that when you see what I just said about Noah and Christ preaching through him and his righteousness in the day in which he lived, doesn't that make you instantly go to the days that we live in? That we're, as we stand for Christ and we allow the gospel to be proclaimed and we preach repentance, that no matter what this culture is like, no matter what wars or rumor of wars are happening, that we can see that we are going to persevere for righteously suffering just like Christ, just like Noah, just like those other saints that we see in this whole section. And I think that's what it is. And I think if nothing else, that's an encouragement to our souls. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the patience of these people. Thank you for the opportunity to proclaim this truth. And give us discernment in all of us as we become Bereans of your great scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.